Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we're speaking with one of those surprise guests, all the way from the United Kingdom, Roger Ellery, known with his pen name, R.J. Ellery, is the author of 15 novels published by Orion in UK and is available in 26 additional languages. He has won the Quebec Booksellers Prize, Leave de Posh Award, the Strand Magazine Novel of the Year, the Mystery Booksellers of America Award, the inaugural novel Observatory Prize. I'm just really messing up these French. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite all right. Uh, the Quebec... The Quebec Laureate, the Prix du Romain Noir, the Plume d'Or. So he's won a lot of French awards. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes on with more French. He's also a lyricist, a songwriter, a musician, and was toured the UK and Europe with his band. As a nonfiction writer, he maintains a blog and also writes and publishes magazine articles on photography and international travel. But today we we're going to talk with him about writing. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. It's a great pleasure and, and a real honor to be invited to speak with you. Thank you. So I read the first book you told me to read, which I really enjoyed. And I, I maintain that it was like a, for me, it was a crime thriller. It was, it was fascinating how you write your English, but yet this whole thing is set in, in uh, America, in New York and in, um, in the South during the yep. 40s and 50s. How does that yep. work? Well, I, I guess I'm a, a firm believer in the concept that one doesn't necessarily need to be familiar with an area from a personal point of view to write effectively about it. Um, when people say, how can an Englishman write books that are set in the United States and have them be genuine and sincere, I say, well, the same reason that Ray Bradbury can write a book like The Martian Chronicles. It's an exercise in imagination. It's also an exercise in research. But I think it's also a reflection of the vast quantity of reading that I've done throughout my life and my personal taste in literature. The things that really influence, I mean, people often ask me, um, do you read a lot of crime novels? I don't actually, but I do make um, a constant effort to find writers that I feel make me feel like a bad writer. So I, I feel like I'm constantly searching out writers who have a facility with language um, an ability to express themselves, ability to write in a, in a fluid and almost poetic style um, where description and atmosphere and the psychology of the characters is paramount. So I've been influenced by writers such as Steinbeck and Hemingway and Truman Capote and Willa Cather. And um, it's that kind of atmosphere, that kind of ambiance that I wanted to create with that particular book. Having said that, I don't write series characters. Every single book that I've published has been entirely independent, has been a standalone. And I write books that are set in Washington in contemporary settings. I've dealt with uh, the mafia, the Ku Klux Klan, the death penalty. I've written books about the New York Police Department. Um, and I really feel like I constantly have to challenge myself with a new landscape, a new cast of characters, in, in essence, a new style, a new way of approaching. Um, we're going to talk about Mr. Hubbard's influence on my writing, and he was 
significantly instrumental in my my beginning as a writer. But he did make a comment at one point which really stuck, which was um, something along the lines of a painter who can only paint one type of painting is not that much of a painter. And I feel that that really relates as a concept to the vast majority of artistic media. An illustrator, a writer, a photographer who can only do one type of thing in one particular framework, one particular context, perhaps needs to exercise muscles in other areas and become more versatile. So I shy away from repetition. I shy away from a serious character simply because part of the excitement for me with each new book is that it is a new cast of characters. It is a new area of research. And, you know, we can talk a little later about how I begin a book and the things that I put in place before I write a book, uh, because that's also very telling about the way I approach writing in general. But writing as an Englishman, American novels, is something I decided to do really out of love rather than a particular strategy and actually served to make it kind of difficult for me to find a publisher in the early days because I was told by English publishers that they didn't feel confident that they could publish an English writer writing American novels. So I approached American publishers and they said, we don't really feel confident that we can sell an Englishman writing American novels. And that's where the necessity to persist and that concept of continuing to produce and, and, and producing manuscripts in an almost, with an almost factory state of mind that you're constantly writing, constantly creating, constantly challenging yourself to do something better. And I think it's that persistence that saw me through. So it was, a, it was born out of love. It was born out of a passion for the history, the politics, the culture of the United States, because I'm of a generation, obviously, that grew up. Um, with the golden age of Hollywood, the, uh, the the most entertaining things of my childhood were obviously films by Cary Grant and James Cagney and Barbara Stanwyck and Humphrey Bogart. And it was that kind of storytelling, that cinematographic style of storytelling that really appealed to me, that was something I wanted to capture in written fiction as well. Which is something that you did... That I failed to mention the story I was talking about, A Quiet Belief in Angels, which I was fascinated with and I absolutely um, just devoured. And anybody listening to this, A Quiet Belief in Angels by R.J. Ellery is what he told me to read as uh, an introductory book to to his writing style and just to, to read um, his works. So I highly recommend that to anybody else listening to this right now. With that said, we shall proceed. <laughs> Okay. So how did you get started um, as a writer? Were you like, did you, were you birthed and then on the first, your first waking thought as a baby was, I'm going to write or how did this evolve for you? No, absolutely not. Um, I really spent the first 20 years of my life with this kind of abiding certainty that I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to do something in an artistic field. I studied graphic art and design. I took up the trumpet and played with orchestras around the United Kingdom. I had a very, um, I was greatly fascinated by photography and I remember devouring National Geographic magazines when I was a child, not only for the writing itself, but for the wonderful pictures that were presented through these magazines. So I always had this idea that I wanted to do something creative, but I didn't know which avenue. I, I, I was literally a little bit at a loss However, one thing was true and faithful through all of those years was my love of reading. I was a voracious reader, and I read across so many different genres and, and so many different subjects. 
And when I was 22, it was actually November the 4th, 1987, I remember it vividly, I happened to be in a building waiting for an interview, and there was a chap who was sat next to me, and he was completely transfixed by a novel. And I happened to say, what, it is, what is it that you're reading? And it was the book It by Stephen King, and I'd read several books by Stephen King and really appreciated his writing style. And he spoke, this, this fellow spoke about this book with such passion and such enthusiasm. And it really was as if a light went on in my head. It was as if a purpose had been ignited by his explanation of how captivated he was by this novel. And we started talking and we actually ended up having a conversation for the better part of an hour, shared a cup of coffee. And he says, there's another writer I greatly admire who, interestingly enough, I think is possibly the most translated and the most published author in the world. And that was L. Ron Hubbard. He said, I've read a book by um, Hubbard called Fear, which Stephen King really considers uh, a true classic of that genre. Um, he said, but there's also a magazine, a book available called Ron the Writer. And he talks about his approach. He talks about he, how he gained success as a writer during the the, uh, the golden age of um, pulp fiction uh, during the 1930s and 1940s. So I left that meeting um, and I actually secured a copy of that book almost immediately after the interview and devoured it. And there were two things that really rang true for me. Um, I was raised by my grandmother. I was orphaned at a very, very early age, and I was raised by my maternal grandmother. And she was very much of the viewpoint that one of the most important things that you could instill in a child was a work ethic, that you had to work, that nothing came for free, that things didn't necessarily have to be hard, but you did have to work and you did have to contribute something to the society and you did have to devote yourself to something to then have something worthwhile at the end. She was a piano teacher. She was a ballet teacher. So she very much encouraged um, an appreciation of the arts and music and, and literature. And she very much encouraged me to read. And it was that concept that really came home in reading Ron the Writer, the concept of, of the manuscript factory, this idea that you just continue to work and you continue to produce. And he was talking about the idea of writing 50,000 words a month. And I thought, okay, well, here we have one of the best-selling authors in the entirety of literature across so many different genres under multiple pseudonyms who made a huge success of being a writer. And his advice is write 50,000 words a month. And I thought, well, that's 12,500 words a week. That's less than 2,000 words a day. That's something I can do. So I started writing literally that evening. And I wrote 23 novels in six years in longhand. I then typed them up on a manual typewriter. I photocopied them, corrected them with whiteout, printed them, packaged them up, and sent them out to publishers around the United Kingdom and managed to amass a very impressive 600-plus rejection letters, <laughs> all of which kind of said pretty much the same thing, uh, which was, you know, you definitely have an ability here, but we don't really feel confident that we can publish an English writer writing an American novel. And it was then I, I sort of stepped back. After six years of doing this, I stepped back, took a breather and thought, okay, I need to approach this from a different point of view. And what I then decided to do was just look at what I liked to read. And I started to read more. And I came to the conclusion 
And this was a piece of advice I actually gave to somebody at a literary festival in, um, in Dubai. They said, if you could give a writer the single most relevant, single most important piece of advice you could think of, what would it be? And I thought, that's an interesting question. And I said, okay, here's what I think. I think the worst kind of book that you could write is the kind of book that you think other people would like to read. And I think the best kind of book you could write is the one that you yourself would like to read. Because if you're passionate about the subject that you're writing about, if you're enthused and uplifted by the subject matter, then that enthusiasm and that passion, I think, is going to reflect in the way that you write. It's going to be engaging because you are engaged. It's going to be emotionally involving because you are emotionally involving. So I went back to writing and I wrote three books in a span of four or five months. And the middle one, the second one, I actually sent to 36 different UK publishers and one of them picked it up back in 2002. And then with that same editor, I have now, and that same company and the same literary agent, I have now published 15 novels. And then obviously later on with The Quiet Belief in Angels, which was the fifth book I published, it was featured in an, uh, a televised book club, rather similar to Oprah Winfrey, but, but here in the United Kingdom. And um, it sold a huge number of copies and it went into translation in France and Germany and Holland and Italy and then ultimately 26 different languages, which really opened the world for me as far as being a, a published writer is concerned. So... It's true to say that that single conversation with that individual who referenced this, this guidebook, this almost like an instruction booklet of how to be a writer, I then obtained, I read it. And that was the thing that motivated me is that it's a job of work. You need to continually create. And left, right, and center, I find, you know, for an example, Picasso, 80-something years of age, 14 foot up on a ladder, 16 foot wide canvas. And a chap interviews him and says, why at 82 years of age are you perched 14 foot up a ladder with a something wide canvas when you've got the greatest oeuvre of any living artist? You can doodle on a napkin and it's worth a quarter of a million dollars. And he said, inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. And you find those, those truths in this field that really strike home. And it is to do with production and your morale depends upon that production, and you've got to keep yourself motivated. And I think it's the same in any competitive field, whether you decide to be a photographer, a choreographer, an architect, or a sportsman. Anything that isn't a situation where the environment and the duty of your vocation or your, your employment is provided for you by some other source, anything that you are independently creating yourself, you have to motivate yourself and you have to decide even when I don't feel like it, I have to work. Because once you get over that initial hurdle and get over that initial inertia, you will find it's, it's addictive. And I find it still addictive, even after all these years when I'm working on something, I still write 50,000 words a month. That's amazing. And it's interesting, too, just you mentioned that one essay. That is one of the essays that's in the Elrond Hubbard Writers of the Future online workshop, which we've made available at the beginning of uh, this year in April, that uh, we yes. now have... Um, over 5,000 people taking from over um, 50 countries right now. So, and, and, the, and the thing to take into consideration in, in, this, in this context is that there's an enormous number of teachers out there. There's an enormous number of creative writing classes. There's an enormous amount of encouragement online for writers. But it has to be said that surely the most valuable 
advice, information and support you could get would be from somebody who has demonstrated extraordinary competence in that field. Just to highlight that point, I am, I would say, 20 minutes drive from Stratford-upon-Avon. And if you go to Stratford-upon-Avon, which is obviously the home of English literature from the viewpoint of it being Shakespeare's birthplace, if you go into his birth home, there is a wall upstairs in one of the rooms with a number of questions on the wall. And the question is on a piece of leather printed in beautiful calligraphy. It poses a question and then you lift up the piece of leather and it gives the answer to that question beneath the piece of leather on this plaster wall. And the question was, is Shakespeare the most translated author in history? And you lift the leather and it says, no, that honor belongs to L. Ron Hubbard. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, and that's in Shakespeare's home, you know, which is the birthplace of English literature. We have the largest vocabulary in the world. We have an extraordinary legacy of wonderful literature, as do the French, as do the Americans. But ours dates back to Chaucer and to Lord knows what. But here we have a situation where in Shakespeare's home, Hubbard is acknowledged as the most translated author. And I mean, I don't know whether I'm right, but I heard or read somewhere that there was something in the region of more than 500 works of fiction in print at one time, under probably something in the region of a dozen different pen names from Hubbard during the the, the sort of apex of his professional career, which is just astonishing. It's an astonishing accomplishment. So if I have a choice between reading a book about how to write a bestseller written by somebody who's never written a bestseller, or have an opportunity to listen to somebody talk about how to get yourself started and how to keep yourself motivated and productive, who themselves has been responsible for more than over more than 500 works of fiction. I know who I'm going to listen to. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> perfect sense. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's interesting when he, we, we discussed, we were talking earlier, you said you were familiar with his book, Battlefield Earth, he, which he wrote in uh, 1980 and celebration 50 years as a professional writer and he wrote that almost 500,000 words in under eight months. But when it, when it released and he um, you know, re- returned to the, the international bestseller list, the following year he launched his, his writing contest, um, Elwin Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, now in its 38th year. And he was, um, his whole intention on that was to be able to help the aspiring writer. He had written several articles in the 30s and 40s in – Writer's Digest and similar publications to lend a helping hand, and he created his contest, which he continues to fund to this day from his royalties with that purpose, to do that, to provide that inspiration and just the know-how. And one thing that's interesting about The Rise of the Future is that there is no, this is how you write, because every judge has their own way of doing it, and they all teach and so Tim Powers will take over a year to write a book, whereas Kevin Anderson will write five books in a year. You know, so the Absolutely. Whole, you know, and Kevin dictates his books. Um, Tim Powers is his uh, three-by-five cards. He, rolls, he writes out and he lays them out on his carpet floor and moves them around until he gets, okay, here's the flow of his book. Then he starts writing, which now bridges me over to how do you research and create your books? 
Well, um, just just in light of what you've just said, I mean, I've spent the last 15 or 16 years traveling the world with other writers. I mean, in late 2009, 2010, I was actually on tour for seven months with only 17 days at home. And I did 62 cities in 12 different countries and went to Istanbul as part of the European Writers' Parliament and right across the United States. And I met an extraordinary number of professional writers. And I can tell you from experience, I've never met a writer who works the same as another writer. And I do creative writing workshops, and I very much encourage people, as Hubbard does, interestingly enough, in Ron the Writer, write and write and write. You will discover your own style as a result of your writing. If you wait for it to come to you, it will never arrive. You have to produce. Yeah. It's, you know, my, my, I, I guess the, the, the axiom uh, for me is that any creative faculty is like a muscle. You have to exercise it to get it strong. And if you don't exercise it, it won't get stronger. It won't get more forthright. It won't get more confident. You won't become more certain. So how do I approach it? I mean, I, you know, we talk about synopses. We talk about outlines. We talk about thriller writers, uh, mystery writers, crime writers, um, expecting to have a twist in the tale or some mystery that's then resolved, denouement that surprises everybody. Uh, and in order to do that successfully, you have to write an accurate outline or an accurate synopsis. And I can honestly say, hand on heart, I've never written a synopsis in my life. I just feel constrained by it. I did have a go at writing a synopsis for my second novel. By the time I got to chapter six, I threw it in the bin because the characters now informed the plot and the synopsis that I'd written wasn't relevant anymore. So how do I approach this? I approach it from the viewpoint of deciding three things and three things only. The first one is I decide on the general conceit, the general theme of a novel. For an example, the book that you read, A Quiet Belief in Angels, the theme for that, the kind of the nugget of that novel was really a child growing up during the Depression, a single parent, loses his father, and then there's a series of incidents that occur in a small town within which he lives that have such a significant traumatic effect upon him that he then devotes the rest of his life to discovering the truth. And I wanted it to be about purpose. I wanted it to be about integrity. I wanted it to be about an individual who took on board a determination to do something and carried on doing it regardless of the obstacles and regardless of the challenges that he faced. So once I decided that, I then decided the time and the location. And I decide the time and the location together because I've written a book set in Washington in 2006. I've written a book set in Georgia in the 1930s. If you pick a place and change the decade, it becomes a different place. So I choose the location and the time period. I chose somewhere that was south of the, um, the Mason-Dixon line, but not the deep south. I didn't want to go into Alabama because I didn't want to deal with racism. I didn't want to write a book that was set in the Bible Belt because if you write a book set in the Bible Belt, you have to deal with religion. You have to deal with that particular aspect of that uh, that culture, and that was not something that I wanted to pursue. So I set it in Georgia. And then the third thing that I decide, and this is the most important thing for me, this is the thing that is, in essence, my destination. If I was to plot the end of the book in a GPS, it would be, what emotion do I want to create in the reader? What emotion do I want to create in the reader? And I get a very clear concept of the emotional effect I want to create in the reader. And the way I look at it is like this. I write a book, I publish it. 
somebody reads it, it has an emotional effect on them, whatever emotional effect that may be. If they then see that same book six months later or a year later, it doesn't matter if they remember the plot. It doesn't matter if they remember the intricacies of the mystery and what the denouement was. It doesn't really matter if they remember the names of the characters. What I will hope, what I hope that they will remember is how it made them feel. Now, that has an interesting aside because you can write a book with a particular emotional intention inherent in the writing. Somebody can read it and experience an entirely different emotional reaction because they're experiencing something from their own perspective and their own standpoint. There's an expression that we have in the theater in the United Kingdom, which is the playwright writes one play, the director directs a second, each actor acts a third, and each member of the audience sees a fourth. If you and I read the same book, we would, in essence, read different books. If you gave the same book to 10 different people, they would, in essence, read 10 different books. It's also demonstrated when you read a book and then read the same book five years later. It's not the same book, not because the book has changed, but because you've got different life experiences. You may sympathize or empathize with a different character. You may understand something about the story that you didn't previously understand because of something that's occurred in your own life or something else that you've read. So it becomes a very personal experience. A book should be a personal experience. It's something that you engage in. And the difference fundamentally for me between cinema and literature, and I'm a huge, huge devotee of cinema. In fact, I've written a novel about the, the, the founding of Hollywood in the 1920s and 1930s, such is my passion for cinema. But the interesting thing that I feel is the fundamental difference between literature and cinema is with literature, you make a contribution. With cinema, you don't. You make less of a contribution. The body language, the character, the tones of voice, how they look, all of that is delivered to you as a complete package. With literature, you decide how the character looks. You decide the dialect. You decide how they sound. You decide the atmosphere based on the way in which the author has, has presented you with this environment. So you make this contribution, and it's an amazing experience. Something that I discovered, fortunately, very, very young. Something that my son discovered very, very young. And to live a life without books is, is, is not to live as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's a very organic thing. It's a very, um, I don't do an awful lot of analyzing. I write it like, for an example, the book that you read, there is a perpetrator who is responsible for the things that happen that traumatize this young man. I didn't actually make a decision about who that character was until about 20 pages from the end Wow! of the actual, of the actual writing process. And some people, you know, will say, I knew he, I knew it was him all along. And I think well, that's really, really clever because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I was, it kept on going there. There were so many different, like, is it, who is it? Is it this? It was this. And not until the very end did it actually come to light that, okay, this is who it was. And that makes sense that you can say that now because it was not clear at all throughout the book. And they're not pot boilers. You know, somebody once asked me, uh, how would you describe a classic? classic work of fiction, which I thought was a very, very interesting question. And I said, I feel that there's essentially three types of novels. There's the page turner, fast paced. It can be in any genre. It presents you with an unresolved question at the very beginning of the novel. And essentially you read the novel to get the answer to that question. Um, 
character isn't necessarily the primary consideration. Environment isn't necessarily the primary consideration. They tend to be action-driven. Things happen and things happen and things happen. Very, very enjoyable. Very, very addictive. But a particular type of novel. I think there's another type, which is the type of novel that you read purely for the enjoyment of the language. Purely because of the way in which the writer has used words, created references, uh, similes, analogies. You know, language is so elastic, it's so plastic and so flexible. And you can use words that are not apropos in sentences and have sentences just become things of beauty. Right, And there are certain books that you read just simply for, your, for the pure pleasure. You know, Jeanette Winterson said, some books we read just because, of the way, because we enjoy how the words taste in our mouths, which I think is a wonderful way to say it. I think a classic work of literature is the one that sits in between. It's a book that presents you with a narrative so compelling that you cannot read it fast enough. Yet for you is written so beautifully that you cannot read it slowly enough. And you're caught in a limbo where you so desperately want to find out what happens, but you don't want the journey to end. And you walk away from it feeling as though you have lived with those characters. I think finishing a great book is akin to leaving a job and a city and moving somewhere to where you know nobody and you have to leave favorite people or family members behind. It becomes so very special. It's the sort of book that you buy people it's the sort of book that actually I feel can either define or end a friendship. <laughs> because if a person doesn't love this book, obviously they can't be a very good friend. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do get, I do get that passionate about them. Um, but, but I, I think for me, I'm trying to write a book that, that is not only engaging on an emotional level. It also has research in it. I love to set books in particular periods of history. I love to reference current affairs of that particular time, the Depression, Second World War, the politics of Nicaragua, whatever it is that I'm writing about. I do a tremendous amount of research, and I do really, really make an effort to get it right. Um, and I will go to the area, I will contact people, I will accumulate vast quantities of, of, of material, but I won't allow the research to slow me down. If I don't know something, I will keep on writing and then I will find out the something and put it in later and make sure that it's correct. That was one thing that I really enjoyed about your novel, A Quiet Belief in Angels, was the detail that you had about the, the, both the period detail the location in in um, New York and in, yep. in in the South is like, and then the Mason your description of the Mason Dixon line, the type of farmland it was, and how it evolved and changed. It was like there was an amazing amount of detail which could only have come about through proper research. So, sure, but I don't think the research has to take an awful long time, John. I think um, research can sometimes be used as an uh, as a means of procrastination. Um, waiting to be inspired. You know, I think the writing is the most important thing. That's the energy. That's the drive. And it was very interesting in reference to A Quiet Belief in Angels because I received a lovely letter from an elderly lady in Georgia who said, I very much enjoyed your book and I very much enjoyed reading about Georgia, but I have to say that you actually made an error and put my town in the wrong county. <laughs> 
And I had to write back and say, uh, very, very much appreciated. I'm so pleased that you enjoyed the book. And just to let you know, I did research that this thoroughly. The, the particular aspect of the book that you're talking about was in the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, the town within which you lived changed county in 1951. And did she respond to that? She responded to that after about three weeks, and she said, I went to the library, and you're right. (laughs) 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 Which I thought was just wonderfully charming, you know. Yes. Um, The thing for me is, you know, I receive – I worked out the other day. I receive an average of 55 emails a day, and I answer every single one of them individually. I feel a duty to do that. Um, And I know that's something actually that Mr. Hubbard did as well. Yes. personal connection and you know nothing gives me greater pleasure than than traveling abroad meeting readers sharing those experiences which obviously you know we've had to do without this year but hopefully that will start again in 2021 um but it's that personal connection when somebody writes to you if somebody's taken the time to obtain your book taken the time to read it and then taken the time to write to you the least that you can do just courtesy just basic good manners is to write back to them and i i have a a great enjoyment uh, and i derive a great deal of of personal satisfaction from knowing that a book has simply been enjoyed i mean at the beginning of lockdown um in march i wrote a book very very different from anything i've ever written before called the man who ate the world and it was actually a satire on some of the the idiocies and and lunacies of 21st century civilization and i use the word civilization in inverted commas um and it was basically the premise was was a gentleman by the name of joseph conrad who told people the truth that's all that he did. He's told people the absolute truth. Every single character in the book was named after an Edwardian or Victorian poet or writer. And it was a satire. It was, it was comic and it was humorous. And I published it with all of the proceeds going to Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, much in the vein of, of Peter Pan by J.M. Barry and some of the works of Roland Dahl. And I just felt it was a gesture of, of appreciation and effort I could make to assist an environment and and an institution that I think does extraordinary things for the well-being, good health and welfare of children who wouldn't get care otherwise um, during this this particularly challenging period of the pandemic that we're facing. And I've received an, an astonishing number of letters about that book because the message of that book is hope. The message of that book is optimistic. The message of that book is if people are kind, decent, maintain their personal integrity, take care of others and take care of themselves, then things ultimately will come right. And I am fundamentally an optimist at heart. And I think with all the books that I've written, even though some of them are pretty dark, I think the common denominator really has to be said. They're all different. They're all standalone. There is no serious character. But I think the common denominator through all of them is ordinary human being in an extraordinary circumstance who somehow manages to hold on to their humanity despite all invitations to relinquish it and i think that's a sort of powerful recurring theme through through my written works my belief in human beings my my love for human beings and my interest in the human condition and how people solve problems how people make decisions and how they deal with the consequences of those decisions those are the things that fascinate me those are the things i want to write about and people sometimes try and classify do i write police novels no do i write thrillers not really do i write 
mysteries, no. In France, they call them slow motion thrillers, which I think is a really interesting concept. Uh, human dramas, and they, they refer to them as slow motion thrillers, which kind of is a contradiction in terms, but I think it's a great expression because even though they are thrillers, even though they are dealing with circumstances and situations and individuals that you would ordinarily find in a thriller, it's done in a way to really allow you the time and space to experience the environment, to experience the current affairs of that particular period of time, and to really get to know the people that inhabit that story. My hope being that they will feel that they're real, that you will feel that they're real people. I think a pet hate I have is central characters in novels who never make mistakes, who always get things right, who always have marvelous leaps of intuition and figure out this and figure out that. I don't like coincidences because life isn't like that. I want to write a novel that you could read and you think, you know what, that could have happened, but it's entirely fictional. Yeah, no, that's, again, my, my one example that I'll go back to is that in A Quiet Belief in Angels, that exactly describes your, um, your modus of, of creating that, that story. I was so relieved at the ending because I was like, oh, no, oh, no. And then it just went, oh, good. Because I, I haven't read any of your works before, and I thought, oh, no, oh, no. And then it was like, at the very end, it was like, ah. Oh. So now it was like, yes, okay, good. <laughs> I'm, do you I'm know? Do you know those? <laughs> do you know those films? Those films that you get completely um, absorbed in, John, and then it, it, you you know that you're getting towards the climax of the film, and everything's going to be answered, and then the screen goes black, and you go, "Don't give me the credits! Don't give me the credits!" And then the credits go up, and you go, "No!" Yes. And you're left with this this unresolved question. You think, "No, you could have ended it for me," because I, I don't like to leave people with that sense. Of, of an unfinished journey. Uh, you know, maybe the whole thing doesn't conclude. Maybe you don't know all the details of what happens in the future, but at least the central theme, the central question that remained unresolved throughout the story has been uh, at least resolved to a marked degree so that you can sort of let go of it. Yeah, you know no, I, I mean? was, yeah, I could do that. But now, which is a problem for me now that you've created because as the president of Galaxy Press, I get a lot of books to read, which are somewhat obligatory with my contest judges and the winners who newly get published. I have a huge yep. stack, but now I am absolutely addicted to your work. And <laughs> it's really created a problem for me, Roger. I just want to know, I'm going to put it, I'm going to put it on a record right now in this interview. <laughs> That's really, really appreciated. And I'm very, very touched by that. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm very, very happy that you enjoyed it. Um, I'm, I'm similar, John, you know, um, do I have enough time to read? Do I read enough books? No, I don't. I mean, now I'm involved in, in film and script. I mean, the lockdown is a perfect example. At the beginning of the lockdown, which really for me was, was the tail end of February, I had no prediction on how long this was going to go on for. And obviously, I am used to working from home. I'm very, very fortunate in that I am now in a position and have been for really the vast majority of my writing career to be able to support myself exclusively as a writer. Um, which, which is, you know, a blessing that I never take for granted. And I always remind myself at the end of every working day that that, that is a blessing. Um, I don't think it's an unearned blessing because I have worked very hard and persisted tremendously. But, 
it's still something that I don't take for granted. But at the beginning of the lockdown, I really thought, okay, I really need to take advantage of this time. So I wrote the book for 2021, which is coming out in February. I wrote the book for 2022, which was kind of specific remit because my French publisher really wanted me to publish a book set in Canada because I have a very, very significant following in French-speaking Canada. So they said, would you be interested in perhaps setting a book in Canada? So I wrote a book and I loved setting a book in one of the most bleak and desolate inhabited places on planet Earth, which is the very, very northeast part of, of Quebec, up near um, the, the, the border, the county line between uh, the provincial line before Labrador. Um, and then I turned my hand to, I thought, I can't write another book now because I'll be writing for 2023 and that's kind of getting a bit ridiculous. So I wrote three films and then I took The Man Who Ate the World and I turned that into a six-part television series, which is now with a production company. We've just cast another film, which is going to begin principal photography in March, which is an entirely original script that's music related, which is the other pa passion of my life. And then I've got another film, which is a very interesting premise because I was asked whether or not I would be interested in writing a film that could be filmed along social distancing guidelines, i.e. never more than two actors on screen and they never actually get closer than two meters. And I thought, what a fascinating concept, what a fascinating challenge. So I wrote um, a film called The Waiting Room, which is in essence, the story of a man being interviewed to see whether or not he will go to heaven or hell. And he's a he's a writer, so I wrote a. It's almost there's elements of it that are that are almost autobiographical because he talks about his writing life and his writing experiences, which was a great deal of fun. That's now with a production company and so and so. Um, I've also been teaching acting, and I published a book called The Actors Playbook, which is 80 scenes for actors to to use in class, to use for showreels to use for auditions. So I've been very, very active, very, very involved, and obviously maintained my own studies and my own personal interest in writing uh, articles for photographic magazines. But again, it comes home to this same just abiding certainty that Mr. Hubbard was completely accurate, completely correct in his analysis of the situation, that you actually get something done by doing it. You don't get something done by thinking about it. You don't get done something done by planning it endlessly. You don't write a novel by endlessly going over the first seven chapters. You know, the, the, there's an expression, you know, some of the best novels you will never read are seven chapters in somebody's desk drawer that have sat there for months yeah. and months and months because the person goes through them. How can I perfect that? No. What, what is a writer? A writer is a person who's written something. You know, what's the difference between a published writer and an unpublished writer? It's one phone call. It's one meeting with one agent. It's one manuscript in the hands of one editor. And all you have to do, really, and this, you know, from the viewpoint of aspiring writers out there, all you really have to do is summon enough courage and enough strength of purpose to just keep doing it. Keep doing it. You know, I have a very, very, very certain belief that if you just continue to devote your time, energy, attention, and effort to an endeavor, you cannot help but succeed. Richard Barkey wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel. You know, he said something along the lines of um, the professional writer is the amateur who didn't quit. That makes, which which yeah. I love. Yeah. Which I love. I love that idea that 
you know, okay, you, you know, there's no age restriction. It's not like being a professional American football player. It's not like being a ballet dancer. It's not like being uh, a figure skater. There's no physical limitation. I think of Annie Prue, who I love dearly as a writer, just tremendous, the shipping news. And she published her first novel at 56 and went on to win the Irish Times Book Award, the National Book Award, and a Pulitzer in her late 50s. You know, she started at 56 after raising a host of children, running a farm, getting married, having a whole life. And then she decided to write. So we're not in a situation where we're limited physically. We're not limited by our physiology. You know, um, W. Somerset Maugham said, there's only three rules for writing. Unfortunately, nobody can agree what they are. (laughs) Yeah, he also said, you know, writing is nothing more than having pens and paper and the faculty to use them, the ability to use them. So, you know, it is, it is a, you know, a creative faculty is a muscle exercise it. You know, if you just set yourself for an example, a target of writing 500 words a day, just write 500 words a day. You'd have three and a half thousand words a week. That's 14,000 words a month over 10 months. That's 140,000 words. That's a good handsome sized novel. And that's 500 words a day. That's pretty much a single sheet legal size. If you did that every day in 10 months, you'd have a 140,000 word novel. It might not be the greatest novel in the world. It might not be the novel that you get published, but it will be a tremendous exercise in strengthening that creative faculty, strengthening that creative muscle. And it will enable you to understand things and you will learn things that, that then you will take into the next novel and the next novel, you will discover your style. You will discover discover the best way that you can work. Do you need to write a synopsis? Do you need to write an outline? Do you need to get just a basic idea and get going? And then after 10 chapters, start thinking, okay, where am I going to take this? Or this is not working, throw it aside, start again. Don't allow, you know, the idea that you can fail. I, I, I honestly feel is a false idea. I think, you know, you can incorrectly estimate the amount of time, effort, energy, and attention that it takes to make something work. But just because you incorrectly estimated those things didn't mean that you failed. Say for an example, you decided, okay, in the next six months, I'm going to write a complete novel. And at the end of six months, you've got three quarters done. You haven't failed, not at all. All you now have to do is go, okay, I made a misestimation of the amount of time and efforts it was going to take. I'm not going to be self-critical about that. What I'm going to do is make a new estimation of how long it will take me to complete this project based on this six months worth of experience. I honestly feel to really get this done and done fully to my satisfaction, I need another three months. Good. Look at what you're doing. Look at the original purpose. Revitalize that original purpose and get back on the typewriter and get the thing done. And if you don't get it done in nine months, give yourself 12. But the point is that you continue to work, you continue to persist, and you continue to devote your, your, your creative power to that thing. And the more that you do that, the more creative power you will have, the more energized you will feel. You'll feel uplifted because the morale of a human being doesn't come from thinking about things and it doesn't come from making sure that you get eight hours sleep. The morale of a human being really comes from that sense of personal accomplishment of having done something really worthwhile, devoted yourself to it and having something at the end that you yourself can be proud of. So what's a writer? A writer who's written something. You can be in the process of writing something, but until you finished it, that's the point at which you're a writer. Good. And when you've done that, write something else. And I'm a firm believer in that. That's good. And it's also, 
I think it's important because we've we've talked about many of your accomplishments and the fact when I introduce you all the awards that you've won, but you made a comment earlier on in this interview about the number of rejects that you had, and I think people need to really understand it's not just off the brow of Joe, here you are as an accomplished award-winning author. There really is a curve. We've had winners in Writers of the Future that have entered 47 times before they actually final one or proed out. Absolutely. Several of our judges proed out. They never won the contest, but they tried year after year after year. And some of the most brilliant writers that you have right now actually had submitted when we're finalists um, with Writers of the Future. Uh, Joe Black, uh, Stephen King's son. You mentioned Stephen King. His son, when I talked to him last year at a convention, he said, yeah, I was a finalist in Writers of the Future. Brandon Sanderson was a finalist. He's now one of the most popular fantasy writers. So there's, you know, it's, it's a matter of persistence. So I think if we can address that a bit more, like you, you can't, I mean, you've been talking about it, but it's, it's one of those things, a recurring theme amongst aspiring writers. So I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes, but it's, it's, it's not that. Well, I teach, I teach, uh, I do dialogue coaching and I teach actors and I write for actors and acting is no different. You know, an actor can go to a hundred, you know, Robert De Niro, after spending 25 years waiting table, earning enough money to go to Lee Strasberg and do my acting classes, after 25 years of going to every audition under the sun, moon, and stars, after bit parts and walk-on parts and cameos and this and that and the other, after 25 years of back-breaking work, I was an overnight success. Yeah. It's, you know, the work in and of itself is vital. I honestly believe... I'm going to give you a musical reference. Um, You have a created, managed pop band. They record one single. It's a massive success. Hugely promoted, vast amounts of money behind it. And you never hear from them again. You never hear from them again. But then you take the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, bands like that, who slaved away night after night on, on Pie Island and went to Germany and played in the cavern night after night. I was listening to um, an interview with Bruce Springsteen, and he would do five one-hour sets per night. You know, I've seen him perform live in Bercy Stadium in Paris, and he's the hardest-working musician I've ever seen. And then you find out what it took, the sheer persistence, the self-belief, People around you encouraging you, recognizing that what you're doing is important, is also vital. But even if you are alone, even if you are single, operating out of your apartment, doing a day job, coming home in the evening and just writing, 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 as I did, for all of those years, with nobody around me who really was interested in what I was doing, still it has to come from you. And... My grandmother used to say something to me, which I found just a hugely important, hugely important perspective. She said, what if is the question with which to begin your life, not end it? And also, you know, Benjamin Disraeli, who was prime minister under Queen Victoria, round about the same time as I read uh, Ron the Writer, I was reading a biography of um, Benjamin Disraeli, and he said a very, very interesting thing. He says, success is entirely dependent upon constancy of purpose. Success is entirely dependent upon constancy of purpose. If you take your car to a garage because it's not working properly and you get a good mechanic, the mechanic will say, turn the engine on, 
and you turn the engine on, and he listens to the engine, and he says, your carburetor's no good, mate. How many cars has he had to take apart and put back together again before he can listen to a car and tell you what's wrong? How many times does a professional ballerina have to have her feet bandaged with blisters, broken toenails, broken bones, physiotherapy, exercise, back on the bar, exercise, exercise, exercise? Why are we any different? This kind of idea that you could do an acting class, go to an audition, and all of a sudden you're a Hollywood superstar is a myth. It happens, but extraordinarily rarely. And the people to whom those kind of immediate overnight successes happen to, generally speaking, are in such shock that they stop producing. Put it like this. If, theoretically, you could write the most perfect book, the most perfect book, and you really felt that that was just the most extraordinary book that you could ever write. You immediately found a publisher, and it was an international bestseller, and you made tens of millions of dollars. Do you think there really would be an incentive to write another book? I've been on tour with people who got their first novel picked up for a televised book club, sold millions of copies, and spent five years fretting about how could they ever do that again. Well, the interesting thing is that they will never create that again, but that doesn't mean that they can't create something different. So much of it, and I really, really, really agree with you wholeheartedly and with the other professional writers who have said the same thing to you, that it is a matter of just having the courage to persist and disagreeing. You know, the idea that there's one agent somewhere who writes to you and say, I don't think this is publishable. What makes their opinion the right one? Never act on a single opinion. If 35 people, all of whom were at the very, very pinnacle of their trade said, I really feel that you need to work on your characters and the pace is a little slow, then yeah, maybe you might give that a little bit of attention. But for me, if you honestly, honestly believe that you've written a great book, then get yourself an agent, send it out to 100 agents. You will find somebody. All you need to do is find one person who is as passionate about what you're doing as you are. And then they will get you a publisher. And that's the way this industry works. But I honestly believe that you sort of have to pay your dues. It's like learning a musical instrument. It's been said that it takes 10,000 hours to really become accomplished on a musical instrument. Well, why wouldn't it necessarily take 10,000 hours to become truly accomplished as a writer, to, do, to, to, to refine your own style, to, to really bring you out of the realm of thinking about the mechanics of storytelling? Stop thinking about foreshadowing and characterization and whether or not this and whether or not that, you know, and actually just tell the story. Just tell the story that you want to tell. And then in your second draft, you can tidy it up and you can make hospital corners and you can tuck in this and tuck in that and put full stops in the right place. But the point is that you've got a story to tell. And if you're so involved in the mechanics of thinking how to tell the story, then you're not really telling the story. You're actually in the process of thinking how to tell a story. And I think elevating yourself out of the mechanics of something really is accomplished solely and only by doing it so many times. Like Charlie Parker said, learn your scales, learn them, learn them, learn them so you can play them forward, backward, upside down in your sleep, and then forget all of them and make music. That's absolutely correct. Another good friend of mine, Chick Corea, that's his basic philosophy too. And he can play anything. He can play anything from Chopin up to the wildest 
<laughs> I know. I know. I've seen him play. He's just an astonishingly accomplished musician. But, you know, it's like they say, what's a professional? A professional who makes uh, the ridiculously difficult look effortless. I'm reminded of Nadia Komanech. I mean, she was the um, Eastern European gymnast who won, mm -hmm. I think, three gold medals by the time she was 14. Had a perfect 10 um, score. Yeah. Yeah. And, and an interviewer once, once said to her, you know, um, how do you make it look so easy? How do you make it look so effortless? And she paused for a moment. She said, it's the hard work that makes it easy. Yeah. Which is true. It's a yeah. true, it's, you know, look at Picasso, look at any great in any field, you know, how many great painters spent how many years apprenticing, learning how to grind lapis lazuli and albumin into colors f for the master and watching the master. And, you know, we have to do these things. This is the process of becoming the writer that you're going to become, becoming the photographer, being an apprentice, learning these tools of the trade. Absolutely. So I think, you know, write a novel, then write another one, then write another one, then write another one, then pick the best one, do a second draft then start to look at getting yourself an agent. The other thing as well is that you'll know that you're cut out for this relatively insular and relatively solitary life, which I find just wonderful. I, I just feel immensely fortunate. I'm one of those rare, you know, I can't remember who it was. I think it might've been Christopher Hampton who said, most writers love having written. They don't enjoy the writing, but they love having written. I'm one of those writers that just loves the writing. I just love the blank page. I just love starting out because it's a journey for me. I don't know where I'm going to go, and I know it's going to be interesting. I know I'm going to find out stuff that there's no way in the world I ever would have known previously, and it's all part and parcel of that sheer joy of creating something that somebody else can then partake in and engage in. I think that's a reality that many of, at least with writers of the future, Elwin Hubbard obviously had that reality, what you're discussing now, but also many of our judges, they just... For them, with this, with the uh, pandemic, it, did, it was no change for them particularly. In fact, it made their work easier because they didn't have the distraction of things outside. They could just stay <laughs> devoted to writing absolutely. their books. I mean, um, absolutely. I've spoken to many of them and said, yeah, this is, I, I, I hate to say it, but this is perfect for me. I don't have distractions <laughs> of things happening outside. You yeah, know? absolutely. I love writing and, and they do it. I mean, I had 12 overseas tours scheduled um, between February and October. Every single one of them was canceled. I had concerts canceled. I had all manner of things canceled. So I've been home. And even though I haven't seen the sun very much, and I've probably got rickets. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> probably not, but go I, ahead. <laughs> I have. You know, I think I, I looked at it the other day. I, I wrote down everything that I've done in the last six months or so. And I, I, I would say, honestly, that it's a good two or three years worth of work. Yeah. Um, compared to what I ordinarily do and um, just the interesting things that have opened up as a result and, and it all comes down to just if you don't feel like it if you don't feel like working then the, the best thing for you to do is work you know if you've got writer's block there's so many little tricks and tips that you can take on board to to get over because it's a physiological inertia. It's not really a mental inertia in my experience. Stephen King talks about it in On Writing, which I think is also a very, very telling book because it's written by somebody who really is an enormously successful novelist. You know, mm -hmm. Take a book that you enjoy, one that you enjoy reading, prop it up next to your computer and start typing out the first chapter. And just the sheer, simple, mechanical action of writing, even though you're writing somebody else's words, suddenly you'll have a thought. And you go, oh, 
and it'll you'll think of a sentence and off you go and all of a sudden you're no longer thinking about something that somebody else wrote you're writing your own words there's all manner of different tricks and tips to just get over that you know the mind is interesting because you kind of tend to get what you focus on um so if you focus on the fact that you don't feel like writing and you focus on the fact that you don't feel like writing you'll start to feel less and less like writing. Yeah. yeah. But if, if you just if you just focus on the just the mechanical process of just pick a word at random, silver, anxiety, whatever, put it in a sentence, write it down. It's it you start the motion. It's like starting the ball rolling and get back into that that groove of of just hammering words out because it's there. You know, if you didn't have a passion for it and if you didn't believe in your own ability to do it, then you wouldn't be doing it. So do it. That's awesome. Well, this has been a great, <laughs> great, great interview talking with you, Roger. And, and I'm sure Absolute people listening pleasure. are going to really enjoy listening to you and what you have to say. And um, Thank you. It's, it's a real pleasure to be invited and a, and a joy to talk to um, a, febble, a fellow bibliophile and someone who also writes. And, and, you know, as we say, you know, some people say it's life and, you know, we know that reading is the most important thing. <laughs> 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 yes, 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 yes. So other than the book that I've, I've continued to talk about over and over again, The Quiet Belief in Angels, anything else that you'd recommend? Um, what What do you like? Or are you just pretty much open to anything? Yeah, I'm just open to anything. Well, I mean, how do you deal with violence? Well, there was not, I mean, in that book that I read, there was some definitely some violence in there. Um, I wrote a book, um, which is actually my wife's favorite book. It's the longest book, <laughs> longest book that I've published, but it is pretty violent. It's called A Quiet Vendetta, and it's 50 years in the life of somebody in the mafia. Um, Candlemoth is a, here's a, Candlemoth actually is an interesting book. It's the first book I published. Um, this is a death row thriller set in the 1960s, which, which really deals with... Um, racial divisions it deals with prejudice but it's it's really in a, in, in a similar sort of way that that a quiet belief in angels is a biography of joseph Vaughan. this is a biography of a guy who who grows up during the 1960s in the united states and he's drafted to vietnam and and dodges the draft and goes to florida with his best friend who is black and they get into all manner of scrapes and difficulties but it deals with them the the you know it deals with watergate it deals with nixon it deals with the ku klux klan it deals with the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Kennedy. It deals with that type of stuff. I mean, you know, probably the best thing to do is to go on my website, which is just rjellery.com. Yeah. You will find you will find every title on there, and there's a short blurb about the book and what it's about. Great. And just if you want to read one, if you want to read another one, and there's certainly no obligation for you to do that, um, just go on intuition. That sounds interesting, and 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 go for it. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much for that. Not at all. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on United Public Radio Network as a syndicated show, as well as on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elmer Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. And again, thank you very much, Roger. 
You're very, very welcome. An absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure, John.